Okay, good morning. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untied. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me my guest, Lawrence Levy, who's written a, lawyer, a former lawyer and written a new book called Pixar and Beyond. Lawrence, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Lawrence, let's start by asking you how one goes from being a uh, te- technology lawyer uh, to working with Steve Jobs. Oh, that's quite a story. So, yeah, I started out at, I was a partner at Wilson Sonsini Goodrich and Rosati. I created their technology transactions practice group. And I loved the practice of law. I really enjoyed it a lot. But I just kind of looked ahead and I was like, I don't know if I want to do that for my entire career. And so I had an opportunity to go to work for a startup company at the time, Electronics for Imaging. I worked very closely with their CEO. I was very strategic in the sense that I was giving a lot of business advice to to my clients. And he opened the door for me to go in and work for him. And I only had one condition. I said, I'll think about doing it, but I don't want to be your lawyer. Mm -hmm. I said, if I'm going to be your lawyer, um, I'll do it at where I'm at, which is just a great place to practice law. And I'd like to sort of spread my wings and develop myself further. And so he gave me the opportunity to do that. And we created a title that was like vice president of strategic relations or something like that. And, um, and that's how I began to cut my teeth in the world of inside the startups. Mm. And how did, so then how did Steve Jobs find you then from there? So several years later, I was the chief financial officer of that company. And actually, my book starts with this moment. It's 1994. I'm literally sitting in my office and the phone rings and I pick up the phone and I hear on the other end of the line, hi, this is Steve Jobs. I saw your picture in a magazine a couple of years ago and I thought we might work together one day. I have a little company that I'd like to tell you about. And I at first thought he was talking about Next Computer, which was mm-hmm. the company he was famous for after yeah. he left Apple. Yeah. Next was in some trouble at the time, and I thought, oh, he wants me to help him turn around Next. Uh, and then he says, it's Pixar. And inside I'm going, what is Pixar? Right. I know nothing about Pixar. And that's how that whole journey began. Huh. Well, what did he say was so noteworthy about the article that he saw about you? Was there anything specific or your good looks or what was it? No, he never said and I never knew. I, I think I caught his eye for some reason a couple of years earlier. I think he checked me out with a few people. And uh, he, for some reason he thought I would be helpful at this what turned out to be this crazy challenge that he had huh. at, at Pixar. Huh. So then, so tell me what happened then. I mean, then you just, you take this job or what, what I mean, what's this, what, well, what happens then? Well, it was a very difficult decision. You know, looking back, you would think, wow, that's a great phone call. <laughs> like the great Steve Jobs calls you to go work for the great Pixar. But in And he was famous even back then, right? He was if- famous, but not for the good reasons necessarily. So in 1994, you'd come to the opposite conclusion. This is why the first chapter in the book is called, Why Would You Want to Do That? Because Mm. that's what everybody said to me. Because Steve hadn't had a hit for like eight years. I mean, he had had a string of failures in a row. Mm. The Apple Macintosh, the original one. Mm. The Apple Lisa, the next computer. Pixar had a computer called the Pixar Imaging Computer, which never saw the light of day. So Books were being written about him as sort of being written off, so to speak. Yeah. And Pixar didn't fare any better. It was known as sort of the cool little graphics company that never really went anywhere. And so uh, it, was a very, it was a very difficult decision at the time to sort of go into hmm. Pixar. Well, what, what made you decide to do it then? I'd say two things. Um, one, you know, I, 
of course, having, you know, by that time having worked in Silicon Valley for a while, I, I know that startups, all startups are kind of a crazy bet. Uh, you, you need to be somewhat naive uh, and have a huge tolerance for sort of chaos and risk to, to, to go into a startup. And, but there were a couple of ingredients at Pixar that I saw. One was that uh, they had an amazing team. You know, I met John Lasseter, I met Ed Catmull, I met Bill Rees, their technology lead, and a few other people. And I realized not only were they extraordinary, but I brought something to the table that they didn't have. So I'd be a complementary to that. And that was, and I understood that complementary skill sets uh, are really important. If everyone does the same thing, it's very, it's much harder. And the second thing that happened is it's 1994, a year before the first Toy Story, you know, original Toy Story came out. And they show me three minutes of this film. And I described this scene in great detail because it was very influential. But they, they, they show me a few minutes from the beginning of the film. And there's all these excuses about it not being finished. And the voices aren't final. And everything about it is wrong. So I watched these few minutes of Toy Story. And my jaw dropped. And I just concluded... Somewhere in this place, there is magic <laughs> happening. And I, I don't know where it is or what it is or how it works, but uh, that it certainly inspired me. And so those two things, you know, I've sort of made a decision to go for it. It's kind of funny because we forget now we've seen so, so, there's so many great cartoons and the animation is so good. You kind of forget how, what a, what a revolution that picks that the original Toy Story really was. Oh, it absolutely was. Right, I mean, mind-blowing kind of Three-dimensional uh, uh, computer animation just had never been seen in that format. I mean, mm-hmm. there'd been some cute films that had been done three or four minutes at mm. the film festivals and mm. graphics festivals but you know 92 minutes of of um of 3d animation had never even been attempted before it was it was monumental so would you say you accepted that job in spite of steve jobs or because of steve jobs though he described it oh it's a good question a little of both mm. I, I i would say on um, you know lots of people warned me against working with steve for all the reasons that, that we would know about but uh, also, judging my own actual experience for him was with him was good from the get-go. Hmm. You know, we just connected. I felt like I could trust him. Hmm. Um, I felt it would be a collaborative relationship, and um, and so you know, I had sort of both. And so I just came to the conclusion that if my instincts were right, and it was a good you know, quality friendship and collaboration, then that would be great. And if it wasn't, then, then you know, I would leave. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't mm-hmm. a prison sentence mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that enabled me to sort of mm-hmm. take the risk. Well, tell me, I'm sure this is more, more detailed in the book, but tell me a couple of highlights then about your, your rookies with Steve Jobs in, with Pixar. Well, the, the, the highlights, it, it turned out to be a, I'd call it almost like a beautifully collaborative experience, you know, mm-hmm. and... I, I found that and that Steve was much more interested in getting to the right answer than being right. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between those two things. Sure. It, it didn't mean he didn't have very strong opinions about things. He he did. And it didn't mean he ha- he didn't and he had a lot of crazy ideas and he was often wrong about things. Um, but he was willing to listen to uh, or engage in a debate to resolve uncertainties mm. and sort of figure out where to go. And and our relationship was almost that. It was this constant debate. You know, morning, noon, and night, you know, there were decisions and discussions. And because we had, there was no idea of where, what direction to take Pixar in. Mm. Uh, uh, and so we had to go through a lot of permutations mm. to sort of mm. figure that out. Did you become personal friends with him or it was always a professional relationship? I would say both. I mean, uh, we lived, 
pretty near each other in you know in Palo Alto, and we would go for sort of walks on the weekends, and those would meander between uh, you know sort of Pixar talk and sort of family talk and personal talk, and then later on when he became ill and and uh, I had moved on from Pixar's sort of day to day operations, you know there was sort of more of that personal connection and hmm. as we navigated no, that. We- have you seen? I assume you've read the Malt Mossberg book on Steve Jobs. I, I think you read that book. I, I actually haven't read that book, oh, interesting. and I'll tell you why. My wife read the book, and she she read me passages of it. Yeah, She's like, yeah. read this and read that. I did see the movie that was based on it, yeah. and the reason I didn't read the book was because it it came out very shortly after his death. Right, right? and and I just. I, for some reason, I just didn't. I kind of didn't want to be like tainted by that, or oh, interesting. not that I would be tainted, but I just kind of wasn't in the mood in oh, a way. Oh. It's like, you know, I have my own experience and my own memories, and I sort of don't need to sort of, you know, uh, um, read all of that. And so I, I uh, yeah, I actually never did. Oh. But, but I tend to feel about it. You know, I saw the film, and obviously I read a lot of the articles and yeah, right, on Steve. Right, right. And, you know, one of the reasons I wrote my book was because. I began to feel that the part of the story that I capture in my book had been forgotten about. Mm. A lot of the story about Steve sort of starts with him originally at Apple, right. and then you jump to his you know, return to Apple. Right, right. And in between, I was, I was going like, wait a minute, this thing that happened in between that, that's called Pixar was hugely important, not only for his life, but also for his his net worth I mean mm, even mm. today most of his net worth or his family's net worth came from what happened at Pixar mm, and so mm. it had a huge impact mm. um, and so I'm like I got to the point if I don't tell that side of the story mm. it, it may never get told so, well what mm. well first of all did you take notes during that time period how were you able mm. to come I mean this is obviously many many years ago you know how did how yeah, were you able to recreate I, this story yes this is a, that's a that's a great point I, I hadn't I didn't have contemporaneous notes but I'd given several talks on it over the years and so to that end I had shaped it as a story in order to to give talks and and I was worried about this myself and I I was working with um, I have a literary agent who was helping me and I was talking to him about that very question and he said he he would connect me with the person sort of like a a teacher or a coach a writing teacher a writing coach who was really brilliant at drawing out those kinds of memories Mm. and filling the gaps Mm. and so I started to work with this person which turned out to be a a wonderful collaboration Mm. and I would write these passages and then he would sort of ask me these questions and and literally and he would ask me these questions and I would say I have no idea I can't remember that Mm. and like 24 hours later it would be like in my mind you know it just came back and so it was a process of sort of recounting and recalling Um, and then there are a lot of characters in the book you know who helped along the way not just Steve Jobs Ed Catmull John Lasseter Larry Sonsini you know a bunch of a bunch of others Um, and I also at a certain point gave them each of them a draft Mm. Um, to read and so I was uh, to the extent that I missed anything Mm. uh, the people that were in the story Mm. had a chance to give me feedback as well well what made you really what really was the impetus for you to actually write this book I mean it's one thing to say hey I have this great story but was there something specific that said I really want to write this book because it's not it's not exactly a trivial task Uh, it's not a trivial task and there were a couple of things that were specific the one I mentioned was that I realized if I didn't ever never told the story, it would never get told, and I felt it was an important story to tell. And secondly, uh, this is 
well, this goes into another topic, but my life had moved on and I became very involved in creating a foundation that's involved in bringing meditation and sort of Eastern philosophy to contemporary life. One of those philosophers is called the middle way, has huge relevance to our, our life today. And I had a, a realization, an epiphany in a way, and I realized that I could use the Pixar story to illustrate some of those points. Uh, and when I realized that, I said, now that's a book that I want to write. And that's why it's called To Pixar and Beyond. Because the and beyond part, although it's the smaller part of the book, it allows me to draw parallels with what I did next. And it sort of sets up a whole new subject. And so hmm. I was like, that, that's a book I want to write. Well, what are some of your deepest insights about Steve Jobs? Who, as you said, a lot has been written about him. He's obviously portrays a very complex man. I mean, what, are your, some, what were some of the most insightful things you got from your interactions with him? Well, I, I you know, I, I think that uh, he 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 was the real thing in terms of his capacity to sort of penetrate and understand the direction of new technologies, and he applied that more specifically. You know, obviously in the field of you know personal computing and consumer electronics, and uh, he he just. He had a mind that you know he's, he was invariably the smartest guy in the room in in in, in whatever field you know it, it was, and he would take he was he was very rich sort of discussing things with him because he would take something you said, absorb it, and then come back with something that would push you further hmm. and so it was um, you had to be sort of strong and on your game basically to to be able to hang in there with you know mm. with Steve and have these discussions mm. but he really wanted to do great work mm. you know I really did I, I, I think you know you know to the very end he got you know the most pleasure out of you know, just producing great things you mm. know whether it was a Pixar film or an Apple product um, that's where his heart that's where his heart was. Mm -hmm. So did, did you, um, didn't he, so how, I mean, at some point, I assume he went back to Apple, then did you still interact with him as much at Pixar, or the interactions went down once he went back to Apple? They, they, they didn't change a, a lot. It was like, he went back to Apple, you know, when I started at Pixar, he was at Next, um, and so I was kind of the business strategic eyes and ears on the ground at Pixar. Then he, so he was never full time at Pixar. Mm -hmm. You know, eventually we, he had an office there and he came up once a week. Um, and, and then that diminished a little bit when he went back to Apple. And so even going back to Apple didn't change much the working relationship and dynamic that was happening at Pixar. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because we had forged this way where he, he sort of wasn't there mm -hmm. full time, yet he was very involved mm -hmm. with the company. Mm -hmm. what, did, what, what did you learn most from Steve Jobs? I mean, what, is there anything that you learned from him that's really impacted your life in, in any way? Well, I mean, um, uh, to, to name one thing is, is hard, but I would say like a lot. I mean, he, he, um, it's very, not just invigorating, but to be around, you know, sort of someone that's sort of thinking that clearly and pushing you. We were pushing each other. You know, he often said that the decisions we made, you know, weren't his and weren't mine, but were the process of this collaboration that we had. And so I learned the power of... Um, of that kind of collaboration, you know, mm -hmm. when you when you have people that are, you know, focused and get their ego out of it and are just directed, you know, sort of getting to the right answers, it's it's very potent. Mm -hmm. What about what about bad experiences? Did you ever have any fights with the guy? Tell me about some bad experiences. You know, you it's interesting. I, I 
I actually didn't. You know, I, I, I we he never, never yelled at you one he day. He never yelled at me. I mean, I, I know people are sort of full of stories yeah, of that, and I know yeah. he did that. But our relationship was it was just it was always respectful. I mean, it, it really was. I mean, that I mean we we didn't agree on everything. Uh, uh, you know, you know by any means, but we would just kind of work it out, um, um, kind of a thing. And so it's interesting. I don't look back and recall really sort of bad bad experiences. Mm. Do you sort of when you when you think about him now, I mean, do you view him primarily as, you know, a mentor, maybe as a boss, primarily as a friend? I mean, how would you kind of how would you view him now? I view back? more as a a person, you know, with whom I shared a you know an intense. You know, it's like the person I climbed Mount Everest with. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I look back, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we helped each other up that mountain, mm-hmm. right? And the mountain at the time, you know, mm-hmm. was was Pixar. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, you know, he was dealing with some other things, but um, but we we climbed that mountain together. And I just look back at that as you know one of the sort of most. What a really rich experience. In now, did life. you stay at Pixar until the end? I, I did. I was on the board of directors until the end. I, I left my day-to-day function as a CFO. I continued on the board of directors. But when Disney acquired Pixar, the board of directors dissolved. And then and then that was it. That so was what was your interaction with Steve after that point? Then after that point, it was just mostly personal. I mean, we always like to talk about how Pixar was doing. and But, you know, tragically, he was getting sicker. Mm. And so, you know, it did morph a little bit more into... You know, sort of just a neighbor who was there for him as, you know, to the extent I could possibly be as he was dealing with, you know, the, the, the challenges of, mm. of illness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, did he share much about, that? I mean, that during that period, did, was he, did you get another another perspective from him? And what was it like? What well, always. And I, I don't, you know, that, that I, I haven't gone too much into you know details of just for for you know for obvious reasons it's just sharing another aspect of life mm-hmm. you know with mm-hmm. someone i i think um you know that's a part of life that in some ways you know i went off to discover even you know, more because it just goes beyond all of their mm-hmm. you know machinations of mm-hmm. business and mm-hmm. corporate life and, and and all of these things you know when you when you're just sharing moments with someone who's who's um you know dealing with something that's that's, that's really challenging you know? <laughs> a little bit about how was that book so ultimately was that book difficult to write I mean tell me about the difficulty and challenges of writing this book oh it was it was uh, it was impossible to write <laughs> it was like you know I, I had um, but I I understood a few things you know first of all I love to write it's really important, you know, it, it, and so I've always loved to write, whether I was writing 75-page contracts you know, as, a, as a lawyer to the philosophical writing I do on the, on the meditation and philosophy to writing this book, which is kind of a real-time action story about, mm-hmm. about Pixar, and so I love words and writing, and, um, and I also understand the power of getting the right critique and having the right collaboration. I learned that at Pixar, and so you know, I surrounded myself with people that really gave me, you know, feedback. The one I mentioned, the other, funnily enough, was my son, who is a, who turned out to be a brilliant writer. He leads story teams now professionally. And so, um, but that's very challenging because critique is very hard to take. Uh, at one point, my son said to me, he said, you know what you have going for you writing this book? I said, what? He said, you don't think you can write a book. <laughs> I said, well, what kind of compliment is that? He said, no. He said, it's because you're listening to the people that are giving you feedback. And he said, in his experience in the world of writing and screenplays and this and that, it's rare because you're so... Uh, but I was almost coveting the feedback. Mm. And, um, and so slowly but surely, you know, 
uh, agonizingly sometimes this book you know took shape and I told my agent that my goal in writing this book was I was going to make a page turner out of an IPO <laughs> and the best the, the gratification I get a lot of people write to me about the book and they'll tell me like I read it in two days I couldn't put it down you know and I'm like that's what I set out to write right because the subject is you know it's business it's an IPO you know it's, it's, it's not a romance <laughs> adventure um, yet I believe you can turn any great story into something exciting, and that was my goal. Now, one of the things that I always think would be the hardest about writing any book or anything, really, is what to include and what not to include. Is that, do you think that's true, or, or that's not the most that's yes, the hardest I, thing? Yes, no, it, I don't know about it being the hardest um, thing. You know, I think the hardest thing is to find, you know, it's like a cliche, but we used to say it at Pixar all the time, to find your story. Mm, mm. It's very easy to go off because you're like, oh, that would be really cool to write about that. Or that I have to put that in, you know, um, and then you can get something that seems confusing and disjointed. And so, uh, Ed Catmull at Pixar used to say, like writing a story is like laying down a railroad where the the track in front of you isn't laid down yet. <laughs> and so, you know, the danger is you're just going to lay uh, right a circle and just keep going round and round. So that's the hardest part is to sort of find your track and 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 sort of stay, stick with it, and then and then you fit everything else onto that. Well, is the sto- is the book that finally ultimately was published was that the book that you envisioned, or did, was it change? Did it change from what you the way you it, envisioned it, it, it at the beginning? I, I would say it it was the book that I envisioned, and I, I, but I don't think that's always the case. Uh, and so you know, I, I think maybe I got lucky, or maybe I just had a, this particular one. I just knew the story that I wanted to tell. I knew that where the, you know I I would know it when I saw. It, the kind mm-hmm. of a thing, uh, and so I did, you know, get finally write the book and say to myself, "This is a story I want to share." I'm sort of proud to, I'm proud to share this. Would Steve Jobs have been happy with the book? What do you think? Oh, I hope so. I think so. I mean, it recounts a good, you know, to the to the you know the, the most accurately I can a, an, an adventure that that actually happened and mm-hmm. and the way it happened mm-hmm. and there are a couple of touching moments with him in the book as well and mm-hmm. so I think so mm-hmm. when you kind of reflect now you know I mean you have this large you know you obviously interacted on such an intimate level with you know a person that's larger than life probably one of the most well-known people in the valley in the world did you well, how does that make you feel like do you think wow what a, what an incredible fortune or like how, how do you kind of reflect on your that moment of history in your own life now about it well I do feel very fortunate and not just about that about you know I, I feel very fortunate about my whole career I mean you know practicing law at Wilson's Unseen he building the practice that I did and so I feel that way about a lot of things and people that have happened to me including Steve and my attitude to that is about leveraging that fortune in a way to do work that is of a different variety that's perhaps you know meaningful in a different way and it's one of the reasons that I do the work that I do now in sort of philosophy and meditation which is to bring to the world something that you know I really sincerely believe we need in order to bring balance to a a world that is kind of out of kilter Mm. you know I'll sort of so that for me is a way of leveraging all of that um, looking back at all of that and leveraging the sort of not just the good fortune of it but the experiences that I had mm. you know because in, in those experiences I also got to see things you know I, I got to see things you know like you know for example like you know we all want to you know we live in a billionaire's world now right mm. when I came to Silicon Valley you know it was a big deal to be a millionaire mm. but no to forget it today that's like <laughs> nothing it's a billionaire's world so I got to see this world um, you know sort of 
and it helped me understand that um, it's not all it's cracked up to be. There are a lot of hidden costs to this kind of culture. Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying that prosperity and performance and seeking and striving for good things is, is, is bad. It's not. I think it's good. But, um, but if it's all that's driving our lives, there's danger to it. Mm. And I got to see this firsthand. And mm. so those experiences helped shape what I you know, came to do next. Do you th- would you say that Steve Jobs was sort of the most influential person in your professional career, or would you say it's, it was really just a, it, he was a piece of a lot of different influences? Uh, I would say a piece, a piece of a lot of different influences. I mean, uh, as, as I look back, you know, I, was, I feel privileged to have had some extraordinary you know, mentors you know, in the legal profession. You know, I count Larry Sonsini you know, uh, uh, among them. He, he helped me enormously as my career was getting going. Effie Arazi, who was the CEO of Electronics for imaging, he's passed on now. He was an extraordinary thinker, mm-hmm. extraordinary mind. He was known as the Steve Jobs of Israel, funnily <laughs> enough, because he founded the. He was the sort of founder of their first sort of high tech company called Cytex. But I learned enormously from him and, and other people, and then and Steve too, you know, and John Lasseter and Ed Campbell. I mean, being around these people, thinking with them, observing them think is just sort of uh, rich. <laughs> what was the last interaction you had with Steve Jobs? Well, it was uh, you. You know, it was a short. It wasn't long before he died, and 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 um, you know we were just together and just sort of talking, and and um, you know at that at that point the interactions had had sort of become you know just being with somebody that was that was you know go, going through a challenging you know, health you know obviously challenging sort of you know health types of experiences, but you know when I look back, certainly you know I consider the totality of our relationship, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I really look back and remember, you know, the times when you know, we would drive together up to Pixar, you know, mm-hmm. this, this crazy commute, you know, from mm-hmm. Palo Alto up to Point Richmond and just be, you know, just excitedly talking about the possibilities of Pixar mm-hmm. and bantering back and forth on, on, mm-hmm. on, on all of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so that's what I, I recall. What kind of emotions did you go through on the day he died? It must have been pretty tough for you. Well, it was. You know, I, I, I think that was, I look back at that now, you know, perhaps even now with a little more perspective, it was maybe even harder looking, as I look back on it, than I maybe even thought of it at, at, at the time. It was weird, you know. It was like, you know, partly it was just tragic. It was tragic, you know, in the sense that he was a young man. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. he was, you know, life got taken from him, you know, early. And so it was, um, you know, I, I just felt, in, in the, you know, I felt a gap, you know, that, you know, that was there. It was just a, a part of, you know, my life, my experience that had been really important to me, you know. Um, it wasn't, you know, it was, wasn't there. And, uh, and so it was kind of looking back at it now, I, I think it just felt weird for, a, you know, for, for a while. Uh, but then, you know, you, you gain perspective and you kind of remember, um, you know, all, everything we've been talked about. What's kind of your perspective on the book now that it's been published? When you, now you look at it, do you feel like you're really happy about the way it turned out? You, I mean, what, what, is, what, is kind of your, what is your feeling about the book now that it's out? Yes, I, I am really happy with how it turned out. And I... The reason, well, the two reasons. One is I, I really, I worked immensely hard to write something that 
I was just proud to write, you know, and I would ask myself, like, you know, do I feel good about someone reading this page, <laughs> reading this word, this paragraph? And I ended up feeling that about, about the whole book. And I just received the most gratifying thing about it is hearing from people who have read it. Yeah, I'm you know, I received notes and emails from people all over the world who were moved and inspired by the story. Mm. Uh, not just the Pixar part of the story, but also what, what, I, went, you know, what I went on to do next. Mm. And uh, that part um, is is by far and away the most gratifying is sort of connecting with people mm. who have read it. Mm. And I'm pretty sure for every email I get, there's probably a bunch more that, you know, probably feel that way too. So, uh, it's a, in that sense, it's a, mm. you know, it's a, mm. it's a gratifying experience. And what do you think it is about the book that, that, that people feel that? I mean, what is it about the book do you think that allowed people to feel that connection or make that connection? Yeah, I, I think because I do everything I can in the book to sort of take you on the journey like you're having it with me. Uh, and so I'm not trying to sugarcoat what happened. I'm not looking back and saying, wow, look at all the amazing things we said we did at Pixar. You know, I'm like, this was a really hard journey and I, I want you to sort of be with me experiencing what I went through, you know, mm. kind of a thing. And mm. I think people just relate to that almost at like a human level. Mm. You know, it's like, wow, you know, I feel like I, mm. you know, shared part of this journey and then they relate to sort of the arc of, you know, sort of what happened you know, what I did next and that kind of thing. And so that's what I think. Did you feel a sense of closure about that chapter in your life now that you wrote the book? Was um, that a part of it also? No, that wasn't so much part of it. I, I didn't write it for a sense of closure. I wrote it to sort of re record the story, but also a, as a bit of a jumping off point mm -hmm. for what comes next. Mm -hmm. the, the whole book in some mm -hmm. ways is, is like a prequel to uh, the next part of my journey. Mm -hmm. But that has to do with other things, you know, philosophy, meditation, the meaning of life, those kinds of things. I have much more to mm -hmm. say and write about those things, but... But this is the place that I want to jump from for that. Mm. I don't want to jump from, oh, you know, I you know, went to the mountain and then realized this and that. No. It, this comes from the grittiness of a business story. Mm. Uh, mm. And that's the jumping off point. And so I see it more as a as a as a jumping off point than a necessarily a, a wrapping up. Mm. When you were writing the book, did you think, did you, did you think yourself, I wish I had written, taken some notes during that time? Did you ever think that? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I did. I, I got in a groove. I, you know, I knew the story that I wanted to tell and I got in a groove of trusting this process that, that my memory was sort of coming back mm. and, and I was remembering these details and um, my my biggest concern wasn't so much not remembering, but it was just like getting it as accurately as I could. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And and I because the the book is full of you know dialogue. I mean, it's not like it's me talking to yeah. Steve Jobs and, and 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 all these people. I'm putting words in these people's mouths, and I was nervous about that. And so I got a lot of advice about how to do that. And then of course that's one of the reasons why I shared the book with everyone who's in it, so they could tell me if I was you know accurately portraying mm -hmm. things for them. So now how about let, let's look forward a little bit now. So now you said you've You've, you're developing this fossil, you're this meditation. Tell me a little bit about what, how do you see this next, now this next chapter, if you will, are, you know, is there another book for that? Or what, what, what do you kind of see now? What is your plan sort of now for going forward? Well, there, there, there might be, I don't know. I, I, I'd like <laughs> there to be. I took a couple of years off, this is 10, 15 years ago now, and I, I read widely in religion and philosophy in those fields. And, and I gravitated toward a particular tradition of sort of Indo-Tibetan meditation and philosophy. Um, uh, because of the root philosophies there that really appealed to me a lot and I thought would really appeal to contemporary culture. And 
I hit the wall when I did that. I decide, I read all this stuff and I said, I want to experience that journey mm-hmm. that all these great masters have taken. Uh, but I couldn't find how to experience it here and I became sort of cynical about it in a way. And I eventually met a Tibetan Buddhist master who's now the co-founder of our nonprofit. Uh, and I found someone who I could actually go deeply and, and engage this with. And when I did, I, I realized two things. One, that... The methods of meditation and thinking that are contained in this tradition are really potent and I believe very valuable to contemporary life Mm. to bring that balance to this sort of performance orientation that we're addicted to in many ways. Mm. Um, So that was good. But the other thing I realized was that accessing that is almost impossible. Mm. You know, it comes to us wrapped in this ancient culture that goes back to Tibet and India and other places and it's very hard for us to peel back that wrapping and get to the core of of it but that mission is the mission of the Juniper Foundation that's Mm. the foundation I I co-founded with my teacher and my wife Hillary two other individuals and um, and so my life has become about realizing that mission. We opened a meditation center in San Francisco, uh, which I, I teach there every, um, every, every week. We have lots of events. Um, but it's a long process. Uh, it, it's not like a quick, it's not like a startup quick, you know, <laughs> IPO after five years. This is kind of a hundred year project uh, to imbue contemporary culture with these ideas. Hmm. And so that's a life's calling, if you will. And hmm. so that's what I'm off. Hmm. That's what I'm off to. And how's that going so far? What, what, what is your experience with that so far? What, um, my my own my personal experience with it has been very rich. It it puts me into you know environments and situations and ways of engaging with others that uh, I really love. Mm. You know, and so it's um, and so and then my own practice and engagement with that path, you know, I found to be immensely you know sort of rich and rewarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the other part of me that wants it all to happen quickly. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, you know, I want this, you know, I want this to grow fast, you know, all that kind of stuff. But my, Sega Rinpoche, who's my teacher and, you know, on our thing, he's like got the patience of a mountain, you know, and he's like, you know, he knows, you know, these things take time to bake and, and we can't force it. And I don't want to force it. You know, I don't want, it's not about marketing or, yeah. or proselytizing or any of that. It has to happen sort of naturally and organically. Yeah. And so um, if it is a hundred year journey, then I would say that the first 10 or 15 years of it are going great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Was Steve Jobs influential in this part of your life? Because obviously I know he had a very Eastern spiritual yeah. side. He curious. had an Eastern spiritual side, but not so much as a practitioner. He, he was influential influential in the sense that he supported and understood what I was trying to do mm. uh, and I was really grateful for that and I would share you know a lot you know about about that you know with him and so to that extent uh, yeah it was good mm-hmm. huh. Well, Lawrence, it's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'd love to check in with you in 50 or 100 years to see how this thing is going and have you invite you to be a guest again. Done. Let's do it. I really enjoyed it. This is Richard Chu and Lawrence Levy. Thanks. 